Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the Jewish Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Moses Lappin, and today I'm joined by Professor Ada Rappaport-Albert to discuss two of her recent books. The first, Hasidic Studies, Essays in History and Gender, published by Lippmann Library of Jewish Civilization in 2018. And the second is Women and the Messianic Heresy of Shabtai Tzvi, 1666 to 1816, also published by Lippmann in 2011. Professor Rappaport-Albert is Professor Emerita of Hebrew and Jewish Studies at University College London. She has written prolifically about the social and cultural history of Hasidism and has been a trailblazer in gender history and method as well. Our first topic of conversation today, Hasidic Studies, Essays in History and Gender, is a collection of her essays over the span of 40 years that challenges many of the received doctrines about the history of Hasidism, its origins, the evolving nature of its structure, its leadership, and perhaps most controversially, the role of women in the movement. Today, we will have a chance to look back at her career and better understand her intervention. The second volume under discussion today is her book, Woman and the Messianic Heresy of Shabtai Tzvi, originally published in Hebrew. The book is a wonderful study of the life and afterlife of the Messianic movement that arose around Shabtai Tzvi in the 17th and 18th centuries and the nature of heresy, mysticism, and community in the modern period. Here, women act as a key to the movement as a whole and in understanding the relationship to normative Judaism. The two books are linked, not only thematically, but by a methodological sophistication and sensitivity as well. Professor Rappaport Albert presents a perspective deeply embedded in primary sources that shines new light on modern Jewish history, and I'm delighted to have her with us today. Welcome, Ada, to the New Books Network. Thank you. Hello. So I would like to begin with the first book, um, your collections of essays, and perhaps begin with a, a general question, what is Hasidism? Uh, I think one could say that Hasidism uh, began as a phenomenon and was eventually transformed into a movement. I mean, we often think of it as a movement, as if it came into the world as such. But in fact, it was uh, a cluster of charismatic individuals endowed with certain gifts that were recognized by the people around them, uh, who responded by affiliating themselves with them. Uh, And these people... Uh, had a message that uh, spiritualized the experience of uh, religious life for a Jew in a way that was uh, informed by the Kabbalistic tradition, but departed from it in as much as in contrast to the rather reclusive tendency of uh, most of the Kabbalists at the time uh, and the esoteric nature of the whole discipline, they functioned in the middle of society. I mean, they were out and about preaching in the street. Uh, we have descriptions of the Baal Shem Tov actually standing effectively in the marketplace and telling parables. Uh, and they were attracting people's response. It took another, at least, I would say, 30 years, perhaps more, 
for the first signs of any kind of institutionalization uh, uh, that resulted in what uh, finally in the course of the 19th century became a mass movement. So I would say a movement of spiritual revival would be perhaps the best phrase to capture it. You've begun telling us a little bit about the origins there of the movement. Could you set out a sort of periodization? Uh, the first essay in, in your book um, is entitled Hasidism After uh, 1772, uh, and is in a, in a sense a discussion of this shift um, into what would become a, a movement. Um, so can you set out for us what you would think of as the periodization or the narrative of the movement uh, in, the 17, in the 18th and 19th centuries? Exactly, yeah. Uh, I would say that it begins, and we don't know exactly when it begins. Uh, we have a serious problem, of course, with the sources for the very beginning of Hasidism. We have virtually nothing that dates from the period of the events being referred to. But basically, the Baal Shem Tov, who is considered the founder of the movement, and who certainly didn't have it in his head that he was founding any movement, uh, was born at the turn of the 17th and 18th century, um, 1699, 1700. Um, and he's said to have revealed himself publicly uh, at the age of 36. So, so we can probably assume that the Baal Shem Tov began to be noticed and to appear in public at some point in the uh, 1730s, um, he is said in the legendary biography or uh, hagiography of the Baal Shem Tov, he is said to have spent his earlier life in seclusion and uh, shunning the public and concealing his uh, uh, spiritual insights. So let us say from the, some point in the 30s, during the 40s, uh, he becomes uh, known to the people who come in contact with him. We also know that he spent the last 20 years of his life, that is from uh, 1740 until 1760, in the town of Mirjibuj, uh, where we have a very nice detailed study of the nature of the town and his position in it uh, by Moshe Rossman, uh, who discovered a reference to his the house in which he lived uh, in Mirjibuj uh, uh, from an entirely independent Polish archival source. So this is one of the very few external confirmation that we have of the very existence of the Baal Shem Tov, uh, from his own time. So let us say the Baal Shem Tov becomes known as a Baal Shem, as a healer, as a magician, and also evidently as a spiritual mentor to people uh, in the, uh, from the 40s uh, to, to his death in uh, 1760. And Contemporaneous with him, there's a whole group of people who have traditionally been described as his disciples, uh, when the model that uh, uh, shaped people's thinking about it was very much the model of the much later Hasidic court, with the uh, Rebbe, the Tzaddik at the center, and uh, a whole group of uh, subservient disciples around him. Uh, we now know that these people were colleagues. Uh, in a few cases, we know that they were rivals, uh, similar characters, similarly endowed with charismatic gifts, who had their own circles, each their own circles of associates. And sometimes there was tension between rival groups. At any rate, uh, to think of this as the first generation of Hasidism is somewhat misleading because the 
man who normally signifies the second generation, uh, that is the Maggid of Mezrich, was almost a contemporary. And it is very difficult. And he is said to have approached the Baal Shem Tov or become acquainted with the Baal Shem Tov towards the end of the Baal Shem Tov's life. So these generations really overlap to a considerable extent. Uh, and the Maggid of Mezrich uh, becomes a charismatic figure and a leader to a group of his own associates in much the same way as the Baal Shem Tov did at the beginning. Uh, some of his own disciples begin to run their own Hasidic kind of centers and attract pilgrims, attract followers, even in his own lifetime. Uh, so there isn't a clear-cut progression, uh, as if the leadership was tra- transmitted from a founder to a successor, and finally to a group of successors, as was commonly believed uh, after the death of the Maggid of Mezrich. Uh, in 1772. I mean, this is a a very artificial and anachronistic construction uh, of the early beginnings. Uh, What happens, I think, is that in 1772, and that is why the first uh, paper in this uh, book, uh, which was written many years ago, uh, takes 1772 as, uh, as a turning point, Uh, It is at that point that Hasidism first encounters opposition. That is when the Mitnagdin, the opponents, uh, first uh, launch a campaign designed to eradicate the movement. And so it is at this point that Hasidim, uh, uh, the group of leaders, uh, probably not all of them, we know only of those associated specifically with the Maggid of Mezrich, come together and begin to have a sense of being a group that is perceived by hostile outsiders as a dangerous movement, as a sect. So this is the beginning of any kind of a sense of a common cause. And it is from this period on, really, that Hasidism developed its own sense of its own uh, existence as a movement. It constructs its own history. It establishes the Baal Shem Tov as the great founder. Uh, and it is from then on that we have a sense of a movement that has a kind of mechanisms for uh, transmitting authority uh, from one generation to the next uh, and a tremendous proliferation uh, within the next 50 years or so. Before we return to the sources Um, which presents obviously a great challenge in telling the history of Hasidism um, and is one of the themes of your work and and of this collection of essays. Um, I would like to talk a little bit about the leadership structure um, and the relationship between elite and populace, um, which is also the theme of of one of your essays in the volume. Um, So can you describe a little bit about after the Baal Shem Tov, um, during the period of the, the Maggid of Mezrich and, and later on, what was the nature of the relationship between the leadership and the followers in Hasidism um, and the nature of the relationship between the elite uh, and the populace? Again, here we have to start with another myth that has to be debunked, and that is the myth that Hasidism emerges as a as an anti-establishment movement, as a as a kind of a, an eruption of popular forces against a fossilized and rather corrupt elite, uh, 
nothing is further from the truth. Uh, we know that the Baal Shem Tov, again, as Rossman has shown, uh, from that little nugget of information contained in the Polish archives, uh, he was a functionary of the Kahal, of the community. Uh, he was paid a salary by the Kahal. In other words, he himself belonged to the elite group. In one of my papers, which was written long before uh, Rossmann's discovery, I argued that the Baal Shem Tov was, a, uh, and this is perhaps unfair in that it is somewhat negative, I don't mean it as a value judgment, but he was a bit of a social climber, if you like, in as much as it is clear from the legends about him uh, whether they have a, a kernel of truth in them or not is debatable. But my own sense is that has, the, the legendary biography, Shifrei Habesh, uh, actually retains quite a lot of historical information, uh, sometimes incidentally, because that's not its purpose. But uh, uh, we can, I think, work on the assumption that the Baal Shem Tov, as described in it, truly does aspire to be recognized by the elitist circle of pre-Bashtian Hasidic Kabbalists, uh, such as the circle in Brody. Uh, for him, that is recognition. Uh, which he doesn't easily get. According to the legend, he does get it very easily by proving that his understanding of the Gemara, uh, which is inspired, it is not a cerebral uh, analytical uh, argument that he manages to defeat the others by, but rather by a, a spiritually acquired insight. Nevertheless, they all recognize his true stature. But it is clear that that was a model of an elitist group of Kabbalists that uh, the Hasidim and the Baal Shem Tov certainly uh, uh, is close to, but not a natural part of, uh, but nevertheless recognizes as a valid elitist framework. And my sense is that Hasidism from the very beginning makes a very clear distinction between the inspired charismatic leaders who are a different level of human, a different level of evolution even. They are different from ordinary people. They have certain properties that other people will never have, however hard they would work on it. And the ordinary people whom they uh, offer themselves as, to whom they offer themselves as intermediaries. In other words, that experience of direct encounter with God, which the charismatic leaders are capable of, can be indirectly shared with ordinary people. And that, after all, is the is the winning formula. That is the message that the message that attracts people to these Hasidic leaders. They are transported, they are transformed as a result of their contact with the Hasidic leaders who serve as the intermediaries uh, between this world and the other, between uh, earth and heaven between their own uh, ordinariness and the supernatural dimension of the leaders who are able to lead them into a range of spiritual experiences that they would never be able to achieve directly by themselves. So the elitism, I think, is built into it, despite statements that you occasionally do come across that encourage the ordinary person to work as hard as possible on his own spiritual development uh, on the assumption that they might be able to achieve the same level as the leader. This is a kind of a didactic device, I think, that occasionally appears 
uh, as I try to suggest, even in the writings of a Hasidic leader such as Nachman of Braslav, who is one of the most extreme cases of uh, a kind of a, a unique elitist consciousness of an individual who believes that he's not only a different human being, a different kind of constitution of the human being uh, in relation to all uh, ordinary people, but also to all other Hasidic leaders, and even going back to the historical past, all the great personalities of the Jewish historical past. So he has a very clear sense of his own uniqueness and his own superiority. And nevertheless, occasionally you find statements that would appear to invite the ordinary person to strive hard in order to achieve his own level. Uh, but I think the deep structure is very much uh, a, a, an elite, a very powerful, spiritually powerful elite uh, who uh, make themselves available to ordinary people with the invitation to join in the experience at their level. Hasidism is often described as a popular movement or something that's folkish um, and open or egalitarian to everybody. So I was wondering if you can describe where you think this misconception arose um, and also what then was the role of the Hasidim themselves, the followers um, of the Tzadik or Rebbe? Okay. I think the myth begins uh, with a certain strand of the historiography uh, that uh, began in from a very hostile posture, I think, in the 19th century, dismissing Hasidism as a vulgar, uh, popular, uh, ignorant, uh, regressive uh, growth within a Judaism which was set on the path of progress. Uh, you only have to look at what uh, the great uh, German Jewish historian uh, Gretz had to say about the Baal Shem Tov, uh, in a chapter in which he juxtaposes uh, Mendelssohn and the Baal Shem Tov. Mendelssohn representing light, the Baal Shem Tov representing uh, darkness. I mean, there's a certain measure of German Jewish uh, superiority towards Eastern European Jewry as a whole. Uh, but Hasidism is really the worst uh, manifestation of that. So there is a certain distaste for Hasidism that tends to uh, color the characterization of the movement as something that only the ignorant masses could come up with, uh, and all the Hasidic leaders are put in the same basket as the, uh, as the, everybody else, who is rough, uh, uneducated, crass, vulgar, uh, uh, and so on. On top of that, you have in the early 20th century uh, a number of uh, historians who were analyzing the movement with the tools of dialectical materialism, uh, and Mahler is the one who is more often cited than anybody else as an example of this, for whom uh, Hasidism is really a, an eruption of the uh, a proletariat again, a proletariat against uh, uh, the uh, rather corrupt uh, and oppressive uh, rabbinic leadership of the Jewish community. So here you have uh, this uh, uh, perception of the popular uh, and vulgar nature of the movement uh, turned uh, upside down in terms of value judgment. Uh, it is viewed as a positive uh, force, uh, but it is a force that originates in the common people, as it were. And uh, I think even later than that, in the more recent scholarship, there are a number of people who are viewing who are viewing Hasidism 
uh, in the context of mysticism in general as a phenomenon that eradicates boundaries. It is a kind of a liberating uh, experience that uh, that uh, that flattens out uh, uh, hierarchical divisions. Uh, and so God is available everywhere to everyone, at any time to everyone equally, which is not what I get from the Hasidic texts as I read them. Uh, my sense is that although you could say that the message of Hasidism, if there is a single message, because it's a very varied and complex phenomenon, that one of the essential messages is uh, the availability, the immanence, the presence of God in the world, the, the fact that God has revealed himself in the world, you only have to have the right eye to recognize it. Uh, I still think that uh, there are people who have one kind of an eye and there are others who have another. Uh, so uh, there were several factors that contributed to the view of Hasidism as essentially and originally a popular movement. It certainly becomes a popular movement uh, because it is extremely successful. And in the course of the 19th century, I would say by the middle of that century, it certainly is. We don't have numbers. It is very difficult to be sure. There are some pioneering studies being done now, uh, notably by Marcin Wojcicki, uh, a number of others who are trying to remap the Hasidic movement and to try to get a sense of uh, its demographic uh, development. Uh, but we're still rather hazy about that. You know, you have traditional maps of Hasidism that have dots uh, marking Hasidic centers, but that center we don't know how many Hasidim there were in it. All we know is that a particular Hasidic leader may have lived there for a while and had a court, but his court could have been enormous or it could have been very small. And apart from impressionistic descriptions of size, we really don't have a clear idea. So it becomes a popular movement is beyond any doubt, and there are kind of regions that are uh, that are apparently predominantly Hasidic. But the picture is much more variegated, and we are still at the beginning of the effort uh, to try and map it out more accurately. Um, you mentioned Jewish mysticism or Kabbalah. Um, what was the relationship between Hasidism and Kabbalah? That's a, that's a very uh, complex question, partly because Hasidism is so diverse. So some of them have left us uh, a lot of teachings, others have left practically nothing. Those who have, get, who have left us teachings uh, have left us really uh, an indirect record of what they actually said, because most of the Hasidic teachings that we have originate in the form of orally delivered sermons, uh, which were transcribed usually after the event because they were usually delivered on Shabbat or on festivals. So uh, written down from memory by disciples who recorded them. Very few of them had the slightest interest in actually writing down what they taught. So we have transcriptions, which are also translations from the language of discourse, which would have been in the sermon Yiddish, although a lot of quotations from the sources in Hebrew and Aramaic, uh, and uh, translations and transcriptions, very far removed from the original sayings as they came out on the occasion on which the sermons were delivered. Still, that's the best we have. Uh, and from what we have, uh, we suddenly get the impression that some Hasidic leaders were extremely well informed Kabbalistically. Others, we can't tell. Uh, and there were a few who actually were Kabbalists and produced Kabbalistic works quite apart from the kind of sermons they gave to their uh, crowd of disciples. 
disciples. But what they're doing with the Kabbalistic language, symbolism, uh, imagery that they use, is ultimately to translate it to another idiom, the Hasidic idiom. So it is Kabbalah translated to something else. And perhaps the best uh, area uh, in which this is evident um, is the uh, question of what to do with the Kabbalistic tradition of meditations uh, during prayer, uh, which uh, we normally call kavanot, uh, developed by the Kabbalists already in the Middle Ages, uh, but reaching a kind of a complex uh, and rich uh, state uh, in Safed, uh, associated with the name of the Ali. Uh, and these appeared uh, as little indications of where to pause in the middle of the service uh, and what to meditate on particular words, particular letters, particular parts of the text of the liturgy, which means that you are actually reading the text in a completely different way, Kabbalistically. You are not uh, take, paying much attention to the semantics. You are focusing on uh, the shape and the structure of sentences and words and using them as opportunities uh, for meditation on particular aspects of uh, the Godhead. So these Kavanot, uh, which were extremely complex and difficult to master, uh, are actually abandoned by uh, the Hasidim. Uh, we also know, Moshe Idel has shown, that there was a kind of a retreat from them because they were considered too complex, too difficult to master, and therefore too liable to uh, to be wrongly used by people who are not fully in control of the system. And the consequences of wrong covenant could be quite uh, catastrophic in cosmic terms. And so there was a tendency beyond Hasidism to, to withdraw from that practice. Uh, what the Hasidim do, they don't abandon the concept of Kavanaugh, on the contrary, it is very prominent. But the Kavanaugh, as we can see, them being practiced by the Hasidim uh, are much simpler. Uh, basically, you no longer are concerned to be completely at home with a map of the divine, uh, as the Kabbalists have it, the different aspects of the divine and the interaction between them and the flow of energy from one to the other. You're basically trying to break into the divine realm uh, by force, by emotional force, by spiritual force. This is captured beautifully in a statement uh, recorded in the name of the Maggid of Mesrich several times and then keeps appearing in the writings of his uh, disciples or in the teachings of his disciples. But none of them can be said to have been the writer of what we have. Uh, and this is uh, the uh, analogy uh, that he offers uh, to a person uh, who is trying to enter a certain door, to get through a door which is locked. Uh, there is a person, he says, who has a key. So he just sticks the key in the lock and he opens the door. Uh, and that's straightforward. And this is the Kabbalist. He has the key. He has the system. He has mastered the map, the divine map. And he knows where he's sending his kavanot, his meditations up. But we are like people who haven't got a key, who've lost the key. Or in one statement, one variant, variant he says, uh, like a robber, like a thief who wants to get in and the door is locked, he just breaks it down with something like an axe or a hammer. So we burst in. We don't bother with the precision of the 
discipline of the Kabbalistic Lurianic Kabbalah, we just aim our, uh, our prayer, our, uh, our intention uh, directly bursting into the divine realm uh, without using the map. So this is a, a kind of a translation of one type of religious experience to another, which is much more emotionally charged and which relies on the kind of a spiritual force of the individual uh, to achieve what a discipline of scholarly mastery would have required of uh, the more traditional Kabbalists. You mentioned before um, the opposition to Hasidism, um, and particularly the ways in which this opposition was productive for the development of the movement. Um, could you briefly describe what the opposition was towards Hasidism? Um, and perhaps the moment that we talked about before was 1772, um, but, and the ways in which this sort of opposition afterwards um, either continued um, and whether or not it was productive for the movement in the same manner. Okay, I think the I think the opposition certainly uh, gave Hasidism a sense of itself as a as a phenomenon, as, as something that unites different individuals who operated uh, in some connection with one another, but certainly not in a coherent way, and certainly not as any movement that has its own agenda, that has its own program and its own mechanisms for implementing it. The opposition made them think well. They look at us as if we are one group and as if we have got a certain uh, subversive agenda. What can we do about it? And the reaction of the uh, group of Hasidic leaders who we know from one letter by uh, Rup Schnell Zalman of Ladi, the founder of Chabad, uh, we know that they gathered together uh, as soon as it happened in the spring around Pesach time of, uh, of that year at the court of the Maggid of Mezrich very shortly before he died in order to take advice, to consult together. We don't know how many of them were there. A group of them were there. We know the names of a few of them. But that is the first initiative I can see uh, of a group of Hasidic leaders who had operated each in their own locality independently of one another to come together and devise a strategy together. And their strategy is very much appeasement. They try very hard. They have the highest regard for the focus of the opposition, who is uh, Elijah the God of Vilna, perhaps the highest, uh, the most venerated uh, scholarly rabbinic authority in the whole Ashkenazi world at this time. And uh, the reason why the God of Vilna chooses to uh, oppose Hasidism with such vehemence and to try so desperately to eradicate it, I confess ultimately I don't yet understand fully. I can only say that my impression is that he is the focus. And if he had not chosen to come out against Hasidism, I don't believe there would have been a campaign of Mitnagdim against Hasidism. He clearly believed that it was heretical and dangerous. It is tempting to believe, and certainly we have a few direct statements to this effect, that he regarded Hasidism either as an offshoot of the Sabbatean heresy or as something very much like it that is too close to it for comfort. Uh, he certainly is said to have said a few explicit statements to this ex uh, effect. And the writings of the Mitnagdim during the whole period of the campaign and the polemic against Hasidism by the Mitnagdim 
which begins in 1772, and he, the Vienna, dies in 1797. The campaign goes on for a while afterwards, uh, but eventually dies out uh, as an active kind of uh, belligerent uh, set of actions. It is a complete failure uh, because even if you compare the different texts of the uh, bans of excommunication, for the lack of a better word, the charamot, that were pronounced on the Hasidim in different localities at the instigation of the headquarters, as it were, of the campaign in Vilna, you can see that they are actually quite uncomfortable with the strictures uh, recommended by Vilna, uh, by the Gaon, and they are much more modified. They try to uh, set the Hasidim apart to stop them from participating in certain uh, communal occasions, but they are much more pale by comparison with the language of the original uh, text that we have uh, initiated by the Gaon of Vilna. And the fact is that they are not successful. Far from obliterating Hasidism, uh, Hasidism uh, continues to spread and in fact grows and spreads much more rapidly. And you can see that Hasidism could not be described as a subversive sect. Hasidism in many respects was compliant with the halakha. There were a few areas, distinct areas, in which they broke from the halakha, most notoriously uh, the times of prayer, delaying the times of prayer so that uh, shacharit is not uh, achieved until uh, midday at the earliest, Mincha is in the evening, and God knows how it goes on until the small hours of the night. And time and again, this is mentioned as the deviation from the norm. But on the whole, they were compliant and in some respects even stricter than the Mittagdim were, uh, for example, in the ritual slaughtering. The kind of uh, heretical ritual slaughtering of the Hasidic, as it were, was in fact stricter, simply stricter than the ordinary. Uh, and the quarrels about uh, the ritual slaughtering uh, spread within Hasidism itself because one group would not even recognize the strictures of another. Uh, there are very few deviations from the halachic norm. It is nothing like what happens in Sabbatianism or certainly in Frankism, where transgression becomes a mitzvah. Far from it. And basically, the Hasidim were part, they were part of the flesh and blood of the Jewish communities. They did not uh, rise up against the institutions of the Pila. On the contrary, they infiltrated it. They joined it from within uh, and ultimately managed to achieve a majority uh, and running the community that they kind of conquered. But they never confronted it. They never were out to uh, demolish the corrupt rule of the Kahal. So Hasidism spreads and Mitnagdism fails. And I would add to this that certain historical events during this period actually serve Hasidism very well as a mode of expansion and stop the Mitnagdim from succeeding in affecting the aim of uh, putting an end to it. And that is the complete fragmentation of the whole region during this period. Uh, Hasidism emerges, as I argued at the very beginning, in a very non-centralistic way. Different groups of people very loosely affiliated with one another, not yet a coherent movement. And its mode of expansion was further and further decentralized, non-centralistic uh, 
expansion. So more and more Hasidic groups, each with its own leader, operating independently as leader to his own followers over larger swathes of territory and over larger numbers of people. Uh, Mignanism didn't benefit from this political fragmentation of Poland we had during this period, the partitions of Poland. Uh, the first partition of Poland happened to coincide with the year 1772, uh, and by the end of the century there's no longer a Poland. Hasidism and Mitnantism both emerge on a landscape which is politically uh, very fragmented and had not been centralized for quite a long time. Uh, Hasidism benefits from this. Mitnantism suffers from it because the town of Vilna, as we know, uh, did not actually hold an official rabbinic appointment. He was completely an independent scholar, venerated by everyone and by the leadership of his community, but not officially charged with running even his own community, let alone any other community. So when these letters are sent by the Midnadim, urging other communities to do as they have done, they have no force. They depend entirely on the willingness of local communities to comply. And as I said before, they comply half-heartedly, and some don't comply at all. And they have no authority, no power, because there's no, they have no central power. At most, Vilna would be, perhaps, uh, under the control of the Kahal there. But each Kahal was independent and could do what they wanted. The Council of Four Lands, which at one time exercised certain, uh, even that, never free from tension, centralized authority, uh, had stopped, was dysfunctional uh, since uh, the mid-60s of the century. So the same conditions that enhanced the growth and expansion of Hasidism, in fact, contributed to the failure of the Mignatic campaign. Let's turn for a moment to the sources you use. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, one of the great innovations of your work is the ways in which you reframe sources that were well known, um, and particularly around your discussion of hagiography um, and the use of sort of veneration or biographies um, that seem to be not good historical sources. Um, and additionally, you mentioned also about the teachings uh, that were recorded and written down by students. So in your writing about Hasidism, what sorts of sources did you use? What sorts of challenges did you face um, in using those sources? Well, the challenge of dealing with the teachings is a challenge that we are stuck with because we cannot go back uh, we don't have recordings. You know, it is a very different situation from the current situation where uh, the deceased last Rebbe of Lubavitch uh, is still, you know, speaking to his audience, his recordings, you know, there are hundreds of recordings that were brought up, a video recording, so you can hear every word he says, if you can understand them. It was very difficult to understand, uh, but nevertheless, uh, we have it. Uh, but for the 18th century, for the 19th century, we don't have the actual verbatim record, and we are stuck with that, and we have to do the best we can, as I said, I think, earlier on, sometimes by juxtaposing different recensions of the same material by different disciples, where you can sometimes try to arrive at what is the closest approximation of what was actually said, but we will never know. As for the legendary biographies, for which the model is the Balsheh, and uh, after an interval of about 50 years, is followed by a whole cluster of hagiographical works uh, about uh, 
all other Hasidic readers about uh, the Baal Shem Tov himself, new, new tales modeled on the old. Uh, that the problem there uh, also is ultimately uh, impossible to resolve. But what I try to show is that uh, despite the tendency, on one hand, of pious believers to take literally every word written in it as if it was historical fact, and on the other hand, of skeptical scholars to dismiss the whole thing as uh, just a, a fanciful invention, uh, the material that is historical and can be verified, uh, that is embedded in that text, uh, and sometimes in the later works that we have, uh, can be uh, very valuable historically, particularly when it is offered incidentally, when it is not the actual point of any particular tale, but where it is just scattered incidentally as kind of anchors in the, in the development of the narrative. And these uh, incidental remarks about practical facts of daily life uh, can be verified uh, sometimes uh, when they're compared with external sources. And you can see that the aim of the tale is not to falsify. It is to ultimately to edify, to strengthen belief in the sages, in the, in the chachamim, which is the, the word they use, but it is emunat chachamim, it is belief in the powers of these charismatic leaders to uh, strengthen uh, altogether religious belief and practice at a time, after all, at which we also have the Haskalah emerging, and increasingly in the course of the 19th century, uh, all kinds of modern secular threats. So that is the main purpose of these tales. And it is there that they can go fanciful. But when they're talking about material or, you know, simple facts, which they're not particularly interested in preserving because they have no interest in them, they're scattering uh, little uh, authentic anchors that can help us locate particular stories in a particular context and work out how much of it can be uh, verified. And I contrasted this with uh, the kind of uh, uh, project of writing the history of Hasidism that emerges from within Hasidism, uh, which presents itself as a modern historiographical project by adopting some of the mannerisms of scholarship, namely recognizing that whereas at the time when Shifreya Besht first came into being, first as a manuscript uh, assembled by an editor probably at some point in the 1790s based on oral tales that were circulating amongst the Hasidim themselves and eventually when it is published in 1814 uh, at that time it is clear that historiography is not something of any interest. What is interesting is strengthening faith, edifying, but recording historical events and facts is completely uninteresting. It is there incidentally, but it is not the aim. Uh, in fact, there's a long tradition of certain contempt for historiography. You know, this is, as the Rambam said, you know, this is something that Gentiles do. They write about battles and, uh, you know, we, we have better things to do. I mean, this is a very crude presentation of that position and there's a lot of historical material 
that, uh, that is written into other genres. But the writing of historical books uh, is not something the Jews did very much of. Historical books as such, historical chronicles after catastrophes, a few exceptions, but certainly it's not a noble uh, occupation. And in fact, the uh, editor and the publisher, both the publisher and the editor of Shifre Abesh, apologize for uh, appearing to be writing a historical book, which has little value, whereas and stressing that, in fact, their purpose in writing these historical narratives is to strengthen faith. Now, the Hasidic project of writing history, and there I focused on the very notable and huge uh, enterprise that is associated with the penultimate leader of Chabad. Uh, this is uh, Yosef Itzhak Schneerson, uh, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, who begins at some point in the interwar period uh, for good reasons, and I'm a great admirer of him in every respect, but in, as a historian, he very cleverly mobilizes the idiom, the modern scholarly historiographical idiom. Uh, in other words, he recognizes that oral traditions are not accepted by historians as uh, reliable historical sources. You have to have written documentation. You have to have really solid if possible, archival documentation. That's what historians value. And so he adopts a style of writing and these mannerisms, he has footnotes, he has documentary sources on which he bases uh, his historical reconstructions of early Hasidism, early Chabad, and offers them as the kind of the, uh, the narrative that captures the essence of uh, Hasidism. It is the kind of the foundational narrative, historical narrative of Hasidism. And I was able to show that this is based on uh, uh, recognition in the value of documentation uh, that finds uh, the a collection of what we now know is uh, mostly forgeries produced possibly for the same motive at the turn of the 19th and 20th century, most likely just before the First World War, a collection of documents that was discovered in mysterious circumstances in the uh, Ukrainian, East Ukrainian town of Kherson, uh, uh, just lying in the street in the gutter. And uh, thousands of uh, letters purported to be uh, written by the Valshento, by some of his colleagues whom we know from the legendary biography of the Valshento, by the Maggid of Mezrich, by some of his disciples, documenting the life uh, of the Valshento and all his associates at a time at which we know nothing about them, you know, long before he becomes a public figure and during that figure. And these are his uh, uh, anchors, his historical anchors. He refers to uh, the Kherson Geniza explicitly as his source long after he knows, he already knows that some clever scholars uh, within a relatively short time, within less than a decade of the appearance of this treasure trove of documents, which at first was greeted with great enthusiasm, we finally have actual documents about the very beginnings of Hasidism and its great leaders, uh, was shown to be uh, a forgery. 
the motivation for the forgery, as I said, is not entirely clear. It could have been prompted by the need, by the desire to strengthen Hasidic tradition uh, with the kind of tools of the people who criticized it, and that is the historians who were so dismissive of the value of these uh, uh, of these historical traditions the Hasidim have in their own legendary books. Uh, but it could have just been uh, the desire to make money, because by that time, uh, such a discovery uh, had a value on the book market, and a lot of people uh, were selling what they could. The collection was uh, um, divided, fragmented, bits of it were sold in different markets. A very large collection of it was actually bought for the Lubavitch court, for the predecessor of the season more for the fifth, for his uh, father, Shalom Dorbel, uh, who apparently, according to his son, uh, insisted that they were authentic, even after it was discovered when fragment corners of some of the pages on which these letters uh, uh, appeared were sent to a laboratory test somewhere in Switzerland, uh, and the test revealed that the paper on which these letters were written could not have been produced before the middle of the 19th century. So that was embarrassing, but the certainly the Chabad court continued to endorse them as authentic, but said simply that the letters that were found were just copies of the originals, but there's no question that they are authentic. And that remains the position of Chabad to this day, even though some people within Chabad, the late Yoshua Munshain, for example, and some others, uh, I think know perfectly well that these are not authentic, but they are kind of committed to it by the endorsement that was repeated time and again by uh, the six uh, Rebbe Yosef Itzchak Schneelson, for whom it was very important. It was a very important tool in his attempt to reclaim uh, Hasidic history, uh, uh, to take it out of the hands of the secular historians uh, and to really fight their assertions with their own tools. Let's continue on with, with the collection of essays um, and actually in something that segues to your second book, um, and that is the role of women uh, in Hasidism and the Hasidic court. Um, can you help describe exactly what it was that you feel is, is the role of women um, and why this collection of essays that you have, these four essays in the second half of the book, um, was such an intervention uh, in the historiography of Hasidism? Well, I think at the time when I first began to think about this question, there was nothing in the literature. Hasidic scholarship uh, in the world in which I was working simply ignored the topic as uh, lacking any interest or validity. Uh, even the one chapter, short chapter, by Horodetsky in his 1923, I think, book, which was obviously known to scholars, did not attract particular attention, was not taken seriously, I suppose. I think the general feeling was that there's nothing much to say about this. Uh, I uh, first was drawn to thinking about this when I came across not only Horodetsky's chapter, but even more surprisingly and intriguingly, by a whole flurry of publications from the, in Yiddish and in Hebrew, and some even in English, from the 1930s, 40s, right up to the 60s, that celebrated the role of women in Hasidism, listing a number of women as great Hasidic leaders in their own right, um, 
And I was surprised because there was nothing to support this in the Hasidic literature that I was studying, that I had been studying by that time for a few decades. You know, where does this come from? Uh, why is it that we have nothing about such women or nothing from such women in the corpus of Hasidic literature that we study? Uh, so I look back, I was able to see very soon that, first of all, Horgetsky's chapter in the book was based on a little article he published in Russian, in the Russian uh, scholarly journal in 1909, uh, and that there was a difference between the two versions. The version in the article was much more modified. It was a suggestion that Hasidism accords a great deal of respect to some women who are all related to the household of a male Hasidic leader, sisters, uh, mothers, uh, sometimes uh, daughters, all of whom were normative women. They were married, they had children, but by virtue of their association with their male relatives who were very famous Hasidic leaders, uh, were granted a lot of respect and believed to have certain supernatural powers. Uh, and Horodetsky says that he collected his information about these women from old people in the Ukraine, in the region in which he himself was brought up, and he was brought up uh, in a Hasidic milieu uh, of the Chernobyl dynasty, and was a very, I mean, I treat Korodetsky basically as a source, more than as a history. He was recording things that he heard, things that he knew, and he says he heard old people who still remembered some of these women. Most notably, and exceptionally, even in that chapter, uh, the maiden, uh, the maid of Ludmi, uh, the Tula, uh, a woman uh, whose uh, short uh, life, he, uh, whose life he describes uh, very briefly uh, as uh, a girl who began from certain, after a certain crisis when her mother dies, uh, and she kind of faints for a while, becomes very ill when she recovers. Uh, begins to adopt the liturgical practices of a man, prays all day, refuses to marry, even though she was betrothed to a young man whom she apparently loved. Uh, you would have none of it. She says, uh, a soul of a male tzaddik has been transmigrated, incarnated in her, and that she is... Uh, from now on, going to devote herself entirely to study and prayer. And soon enough, uh, people begin to flock to her uh, and regard her as a Hasidic leader in her own right. Horetsky uh, describes this as unique. And uh, eventually, she uh, is uh, forced to marry uh, on the advice of Mordechai of Chernobyl, who is... Uh, brought into the case uh, because uh, the kind of local leadership is embarrassed by this phenomenon of a woman leader. She's forced to marry, but she refuses to uh, to consummate the marriage. She's forced to marry again, refuses to consummate it. Apparently, the magic is dispelled once she's married and her following abandons her, and she ends her life in the Holy Land uh, uh, and dies there uh, apparently in complete anonymity. There's nothing about what happened to her in Eretz Israel. Uh, the story is developed and fleshed out in the chapter that Horodesky wrote uh, more than 20 years later uh, when he 
by that time, as I try to show, he had been exposed both to Zionism, which has in it a very uh, clear feminist strand, you know, egalitarian feminist strand, more in theory than in practice, but nevertheless there very much. And he has also been exposed to Jewish feminism, the beginning of Jewish feminism in Berlin, because Hordetsky left his Ukraine birthplace, traveled and studied in Europe, in Switzerland, he was in Berlin. He is exposed to new strands of thought that uh, embrace uh, a form of feminism, egalitarian feminism, and projects that into his treatment of the same topic in the chapter in the book, uh, in a way which was completely lacking in the original article in Russian. And it is clear that he was one of those Jewish Zionist thinkers who believed, and he's not alone, that Hasidism can offer a viable model for the rebirth of the Jewish people on its land, uh, viable because it is authentically Jewish, it came from within, as opposed to various other ideologies that come entirely from outside. And so for him, Hasidism with its feminism becomes a very important uh, agenda. And that is what is very present in his treatment of the subject. Now, his book became very popular. And I was able to show, I think, uh, convincingly, that virtually all the subsequent treatments of the topic in popular books, in journalistic accounts, in anthologies of newspaper articles published by Yiddish writers in Poland in the interwar years, by Hebrew writers, uh, and some fictional works, very famously, were fascinated by the story of the Maid of Ludmir and basically had very or practically no other information than that provided by Horodetsky originally, but they flesh it out and develop it. And so the story acquires more and more uh, details, including some, and I'm convinced that they are not uh, anchored in any authentic tradition, even though some purport to be uh, about her running a Hasidic court in Jerusalem and people flocking to her. There's no trace of that in the Jewish press of those years. One would have expected, particularly the journals that were active in Eretz Israel at the time, Chabatzelet, uh, you know, not a word about this uh, anywhere. No marking of her date of death or if she had been a public figure in uh, Jerusalem at the time, uh, we surely would have found something about it. It's such a striking phenomenon. I really believe that she died in anonymity. Uh, she does appear to feature uh, as a real historical figure, uh, and I have no doubt that she did attract a following for a while until it was suppressed or quashed by the local male leadership under whatever circumstances, through her marriage or not. But uh, there was uh, uh, there are two references to a woman that sounds very much like her uh, by name, by place of origin, Ludmir in Berlin, who features in the list of the widows of Jerusalem in the uh, 1860s and 1870s that appear in the censuses that Montefiore commissioned of the Jewish population of Eretz Israel. And I uh, uh, discovered it thanks to a graduate student, an American graduate student who stumbled on it and drew my attention to it. And more or less at the same time, uh, the author of the uh, beautifully written book, uh, The Maiden of Ludmere, um, Nathaniel, uh, 
Sorry. This is old age senility. Please don't include it. <laughs> Not Daniel Deutsch, sorry. Uh, also, I think at about the same time, discovered it quite independently. I published it as an appendix to a Hebrew version of my original article. He includes it in, uh, in his book. So I believe that she was a historical figure. And in fact, I believe that there may have been other women like her. But to me, the significant fact is that the Hasidic movement chooses to pass over this incomplete silence, and I refer to it as a thundering silence, because if it was something that Hasidism was capable of assimilating, the phenomenon of female Hasidic leader, we would have heard something about it. But they choose to completely pass over it in silence. They don't have the conceptual tools to integrate it into their worldview. Uh, and it is only in the 20th century, and more and more so as feminism, Jewish feminism and Orthodox feminism take force, that this becomes a very popular topic. And it features in all kinds of apologetic accounts about the prominence of women in the Jewish tradition. You know, it's not true that this is a patriarchal system. It is not true that it is misogynistic. Look, it also has these uh, Jewish women leaders admired by all. Now, when I first wrote this article, I think... It uh, started slowly, but it did start a, a whole new debate about the topic. And a number of people responded to what I said by modifying the picture somewhat, by stressing uh, a feature that I did not conceal. I also addressed it, but giving it much more information and strength, that even though it is true that a, top, a type uh, of female leader, such as the Maid of Lodmir, namely a woman who chooses celibacy, which is uh, anathema to uh, rabbinic tradition. Uh, there's no particular spiritual value to being a virgin. A virgin is just an unfortunate, incomplete woman. You know, if she doesn't manage to marry and procreate, she has not fully matured, as it were. It is a tragedy, but it is not a religious value for a woman in herself. Uh, it is occasionally for a man, but certainly not for a woman. Uh, so... Uh, uh, these women certainly were not a legitimate model, but the other model of the married mother who is related by close family ties to a major male Hasidic figure was indeed treated with tremendous respect and credited with the power to perform supernatural things. Her blessings were sought rather like the blessings of male Hasidikim. People submitted tzetlach for her. She offered a pigeon, you know, a ransom. Uh, uh, she offered to mediate on their behalf in much the same way as the male uh, tzadikim. So they're never, these women, tzadikim referred to as tzadikim in their own right. They're never treated as such, but they come as close to it as a woman can. And so I modified somewhat my categorical assertions about the fact that women were totally excluded from the spiritual life of the Hasidic uh, Court, although I still do believe that effectively they were, because ultimately women are not present when the Rebbe delivers his teaching. They're not uh, present at his tish, at his table. Uh, at the very beginning, I argued, Hasidism offers an alternative to a family life where there are women and children, because the Hasidim, the pattern of affiliating with Hasidism consisted of leaving home for extended periods, sometimes months, uh, usually at the times when the presence of a man was most necessary in the household uh, during the festivals, uh, during Shabbat. 
And the men would have an alternative spiritual family, which is entirely male, a fraternity, where all the rituals of celebration, uh, which entail a meal uh, around the table, were recreated in this purely male environment. Um, and to a certain extent, this is still true. Uh, and uh, I have some evidence of uh, more recent Hasidic courts where women are not part of the Seder celebration. They celebrate the Seder separately in their own room. They're not part of the family celebration. They're ultimately displaced by the female presence of the divine at the table of the male participants. Uh, but this is by no means universal. So the picture that I drew to begin with in a very kind of strong uh, uh, way has been modified by more information about these eminent women who are not full-fledged tzaddikim but who are related to them and have quite a lot of power by other avenues that women had for exercising power. But these are always women who are closely related to the household of a male leader, daughter-in-law, widow of very rarely wife, uh, usually the widow of a great Hasidic leader or the matriarch, the the, uh, the mother of the reigning rebbe, uh, would have a lot of power in determining. Uh, Nehemiah Poland has shown how much power they had in deciding on the succession, which son would be the successor of a particular, particular rebbe at a particular court. Uh, so more and more people have also highlighted the prominence of women in the tales. Uh, the fact that they are even mentioned, you know, and this is natural because the tales are describing daily life and women are present in daily life, but the women are often credited with virtues. They're never the virtues of a rebbe, but they're the traditional women virtues of being charitable, being uh, generous, being pious. Uh, so the picture is complex, and I became more interested in the recent years, uh, having satisfied myself that women are not made to be Rebels to be tzaddikim, uh, and that the maid of Lugmir is perhaps the exception that confirms the rule, or the maid of Lugmir and other women who may have existed like her, but about whom we know nothing. These are the exceptions that confirm the rule that this is not a legitimate model, but there are many women who conform to the legitimate model. And what became more interesting to me is what is the nature of the affiliation of ordinary women, the wives of the Hasidim, the daughters of the Hasidim, to the movement. And this is what really uh, propels uh, the, the two papers in this collection that deals with the, uh, the relationship of women to the court, women to Hasidism, uh, consciousness of belonging to the movement. Uh, on the case, uh, test case of Chabad, which is the one I've studied most, it is the one which has the richest uh, literature published and is also very accessible. Uh, so looking at the Chabad case, I try to show how a female constituency of women who are identifying themselves with the movement, in contrast to the kind of connection they would have had with it in the 19th and certainly in the 18th century, which was much more precarious and much more indirect, uh, how it comes into being and how they graduate from being at the time of the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, 
again, Yosef Itzchak, Schneor Solomon, I mentioned in connection with the hagiography uh, that pretends to be history, historiography. Uh, he is also a great innovator, as he is in every respect, in terms of the space he creates for women in, in his flock, the recognition of women, uh, first by just mobilizing them as Orthodox activists at a time of crisis for Orthodox Jewry when the threat of desertion into the secular world is very serious. And finally, in the late 30s, uh, uh, and uh, he begins to even open up scope for women to be introduced to the mystical teachings of Chabad, of Hasidism. Uh, and this is a trend that is enhanced a great deal by his uh, successor, the last writer, um, who is the first one to actually incorporate women as a collective, as an organization in its own right within Chabad. And this is Neshe uh, of not Chabad, the women and daughters of Chabad, and I'm deliberately translating of not Nashim and Banot, not as wives and daughters, but as women and young girls of Chabad. I'm sure that that is how it is to be understood. You had mentioned previously um, in the opposition towards Hasidism, um, particularly by the figure of the Vilna Gaon in the late 18th century, um, that there was a comparison of the burgeoning Hasidic movement um, to a previous movement, uh, the heresy of, of Shabtai Tzvi. Um, and I think this is an interesting transition uh, to the second book under discussion, which is your book, Women in the Messianic Heresy of Shabtai Tzvi. Um, so I was wondering if briefly you can give a little bit of background um, about Sabbatianism. Um, what was it like and what sort of context did it exist in um, and what was its opposition? Okay. I mean, Sabbatianism begins as a kind of a messianic, uh, an eruption of messianic expectations of instant or imminent redemption around the figure of another charismatic, I mean, this is Sabbatai Tzvi, Shabtai Tzvi, uh, a Jew uh, born in Smyrna, Izmir, um, uh, in 1726. He's a, a strange young man, uh, begins to study Kabbalah on his own, which is unusual without a teacher. Uh, is particularly fascinated by two Kabbalistic works, no others as far as we know, the Zohar and Sefer HaKana. Uh, maybe say something about it later. And uh, he uh, apparently proclaims himself the Messiah after performing a whole series of weird things, uh, pronouncing the Tetragrammaton uh, in public, uh, which is not to be done, uh, behaving a bit strangely, and ultimately is driven out of the town by the rabbinic authorities uh, as a madman, basically. And he embarks on a period of travel through the Greek islands. We don't know exactly where he was or what he was doing uh, until... He finally uh, encounters uh, the man who becomes his prophet, Nathan of Gaza, who recognizes his face as the face that he, in a vision, had seen on the divine chariot in a vision he had and tells him he is the Messiah. So confirms such messianic uh, sense that he had himself. Sabbatai Tzvi himself is portrayed as a not particularly stable personality. Uh, he needs this confirmation. 
And so Sabbatai III proclaims himself finally publicly as Messiah in 1665, in the winter of 1665, in Izmir, and he's greeted with tremendous uh, enthusiasm. There's a little bit of opposition, a little bit of resistance to this uh, in some quarters, but this is quickly wiped out by the wave of popular enthusiasm. Uh, why the public would have been so receptive to this uh, message uh, is uh, there's a whole range of explanations, uh, and I won't go into them now. Uh, but uh, the movement quickly takes on uh, and spreads throughout, effectively, the Jewish world. Uh, and we have evidence of this not only from the intense correspondence, and we are dealing with a period when means of communication are fairly good by the middle of the 17th century. So letters travel back and forth, broadsheets are published, uh, read out publicly in the synagogue. Uh, the news spreads very rapidly. We have a lot of uh, evidence that non-Jewish observers, wherever it came, wherever it reached, uh, noted it and reported it and published their own, sometimes uh, uh, simply curious, sometimes hostile accounts of it. And uh, Sabbatites V emerges as the uh, messianic figure in an environment to begin with, which is uh, predominantly Sephardi in practice, even though it is really an old Byzantine, he himself is an old Byzantine Jew, a Roman yacht, but there are many, many, many uh, uh, ex uh, Marano Jews, conversers who have returned to Judaism during the whole of the 16th and first half of the 17th century, moving into and within the Ottoman Empire, settling uh, his own town of Izmir, which is a port town, has a very diverse population of Jews from all over the place. Uh, it is a society that is much less confined by solid tradition. It is a society that had undergone uh, uh, several traumas and uh, is experiencing a great deal of migration during this period, so perhaps is more receptive to new messages and new practices. Uh, at any rate, Sabbatites, we uh, supported by the prophecies of Nathan of Gaza, who is a tremendously effective propagandist for him, uh, acquires an international reputation, uh, but uh, the end of a year in 1666, um, he is uh, arrested by the Ottoman uh, authorities, uh, suspected of subversion because there's too much uh, upheaval going on in the Jewish population. And apparently this is uh, looking like it might be politically dangerous. Uh, and he is uh, uh, eventually forcibly converted within uh, that uh, period of uh, his incarceration, converts to Islam. And you would think that this might put an end to the whole upheaval and uh, enthusiasm, but not so. Although some people abandon their faith and realize that this is a false messiah, significant numbers of people, and we don't have precise figures, but it is clear that the movement keeps going. And Nathan of Gaza is very ingenious in interpreting the act of conversion to Islam as 
part of the preordained mission of the Messiah, who is descending to the abyss of uh, impurity that is represented by Islam in order to extricate from it the particles of divine light, using Kabbalistic language, uh, that are trapped within it and that would keep it alive. And once he completes his task and releases all the divine energy that is entrapped within Islam and sustains it in existence, it would kind of dwindle away, as it were. It will come to an end and the whole world will be redeemed. So this message enables the movement to go on uh, and it, it goes on everywhere in Western Europe, in Eastern Europe, in the Levant, uh, in North Africa, in the Yemen. Uh, it is uh, astounding how, um, how worldwide it becomes. And uh, a small group of people uh, follow Sabbatai Tzvi uh, in conversion to Islam while retaining a distinctive identity as Sabbateans, as, as converted Jews. Um, and uh, the majority remained Jewish. The, in other words, the transgressions by, performed by Sabbatai Tzvi and the ones he calls upon the believers to uh, follow suit in do not include compulsory conversion for everybody. They include uh, the sort of transgressions that uh, there was a wonderful article published not long ago by Maoz Kahana showing how most of them can be explained as following very precisely the inner logic of the halakha for messianic times. So they're not defined transgressions uh, uh, for the sake of nihilistic release from all boundaries, but rather very carefully calculated to answer the need of messianic times in terms of the halakha, so the abolition of the fasts that mark mourning for the destruction of the temple because there's no longer any need to mourn it because the temple is about to be rebuilt and the sacrifices to be restored and so on. So the movement has tremendous longevity and vitality which marks it out by comparison to all other messianic episodes, and there have been many in the history of Judaism, which on the whole tend to remain local and to be short-lived once the messianic expectation is proved to uh, not be fulfilled, uh, the thing dies out. And here it doesn't die out, and it survives into the 19, into the 18th century. And in fact, uh, the title of my book uses a landmark uh, 1666 as uh, the year of III's, uh conversion, when the movement really becomes a heresy, and 16, 1816, which is the year in which, uh, it is also an arbitrary date, but it is the year in which Eva Frank, the daughter of Jacob Frank, who is perhaps the most powerful uh, successor, if you like, or uh, kin uh, but very different type of messianic figure that emerged in Poland in the uh, middle of the 18th century. And this is his daughter, who in the last uh, 20 years of his life, he actually presents as a female messiah. So the whole movement has uh, struck me, uh, and I tried to uh, show, uh, has uh, embedded in it from the very beginning uh, uh, an ideal of female liberation, a kind of an egalitarian gender, egalitarian agenda, which is not consistently uh, and coherently articulated, although we have a wonderful short record of what appears to be an authentic 
sermon or preach or kind of speech by Sabbatai Tzvi in Izmir addressed to women in which he promises to liberate them from all their sufferings uh, as a result of the sin of Eve. He's coming to annul the sin, the primordial sin. Uh, He's coming to make women as happy as their husbands, equal to their husbands in uh, enjoying the uh, redeemed world that he is bringing uh, into effect. So he has got this idea from the very beginning, and this is Sabbatai Tzvi's idea, if we have to trust the evidence which comes to us from a uh, a, a rather hostile Dutch observer who was present and heard it and seems to record it uh, as close to verbatim as we can believe. We never know, but I think on the whole, this is a usable piece of evidence. Uh, And subsequently, there is evidence of this agenda never consistently implemented, not everywhere, but it runs right through from the beginning right up to the end where you have the figure of the uh, female messiah uh, uh, as construed by Jacob Frank. So this is what attracted my attention. And I went, even though Sholem, the the, the, the author of the monumental study of the Sabbatean movement, uh, without which we would have not be anywhere where we are today in terms of our knowledge of this, Sholem was aware of most of the evidence about women in the movement. And yet his verdict was that they were insignificant, that they were not particularly important, and they played no particular role in the shaping of the Sabbatean movement. I came to the conclusion that women, uh, on the basis of the evidence assembled, can be shown to have been granted unequaled equality in terms of their ability, the recognition of their power for spiritual uh, revelations that they are sharing with other people to be uh, recognized as prophetesses, to be functioning effectively as leaders of sectarian groups once the movement after the apostasy of Sabbatai Tzvi gradually moves underground, uh, to be uh, playing a full part in the whole project, studying Zohar, being taught Zohar. There was a definite agenda of teaching Zohar to women in the original, if possible, and if they don't know the Aramaic or the Hebrew, to teach them in translation, in Yiddish on the one hand, in Ladino, uh, and we have translations that were being used for this purpose and descriptions of sessions in which men and women sit and study together or have private tuition in the Zohar. Women, uh, teachers are hired to teach the daughters of the household Zohar. We have uh, women becoming the focus of pilgrimage for local populations that are there to hear their messianic revelations about Shabbat Eitzvi and who effectively trigger the emergence of a messianic uh, enthusiasm in particular localities. They're the first ones. Sometimes they're the ones who actually persuade the men that the messianic messages are authentic, are true, and should be obeyed. So I was overwhelmed by uh, this discovery, and I kind of uh, argued that if there ever was anything remotely like uh, a feminist agenda anywhere in pre-modern Judaism, then it was not in Hasidism where it has been said, and I try to argue that this is a myth, but it is in Sabbateanism, and it is significant that it is so anomalous, it is heretical, it is something that grows within an environment that steps away from the world of rabbinic values, rather than Hasidism, which ultimately stays very much within it. And in fact, I argued 
originally that Hasidism excludes women as hermetically as it does, uh, simply because it is being conservative. It conforms to traditional gender norms that govern Jewish rabbinic society uh, from the early centuries of the Common Era and to a certain effect uh, even to this day. Whereas after I became acquainted with the material in Sabbatianism and came to the conclusion that something very different is happening here, I, I revised my view and argued that very likely Hasidism was retreating consciously and horrified from what it witnessed in the spread of Sabbatianism, uh, uh, even in Poland, at the same time and in the same regions as Hasidism was emerging, uh, because the prominence of women in Sabbatianism was viewed by rabbinic Judaism, generally by the people around them, above all, as evidence that once you let the women loose, once you have them studying, prophesying, leading communities, you have uh, complete collapse of uh, the prohibitions on sexual relations. You have uh, an eradication of the gender boundaries that are so deeply embedded in the whole halakha that make it a very clear separation of what, uh, what is for women, what is for men. But once you knock down these barriers, you have uh, licentious behavior left, right, and center. You have people uh, behaving immorally as it was perceived. This was the one thing that became a hallmark of the Sabbatean heresy. And I think it became that, above all, because of the prominence of women within it, the fact that women are an integral part of the messianic community in all the different uh, sectarian groups and other manifestations of, of Sabbateanism that I could see wherever it happened. It doesn't always take the same form, but it is present there right through, uh, sometimes richly documented, sometimes uh, just alluded to, but I think when you put all this evidence together, uh, there's no doubt that this is the case. To continue with this theme, and in a sense, link the two books under discussion today, could you briefly reflect on the relationship between Sabbateanism and Hasidism? On the surface, both are movements interested in Jewish spiritual renewal in the Eastern European setting. And in your books, you argue in different ways for the centrality of women to both movements. Yes, I mean, this is a, a question that has been hotly debated. I mean, Sholem uh, and his students generally uh, were inclined to the view that Hasidism emerges really as a dialectical reaction to Sabbateanism. So it is very close to it, but it is defining itself in reference to and sometimes as a modification of uh, attenuation of some of the features of Sabbateanism that became discredited through the movement. Uh, most notably, Sholem argued that the figure of the tzaddik, the charismatic, the emergence of the charismatic leader as the key to Hasidism is a modified version of the messianic prophet in Sabbateanism, or the messianic prophet come messiah, as many of them were, both they begin as prophets and become, assume a certain dimension of being the messiah himself, sometimes even divinized in one form or another. So 
to Sholem, this was, uh, and the question of the descent of the tzaddik, which is a feature of Hasidic teaching, uh, the tzaddik has to descend to the level of well, how low is the debatable. Sometimes it is stated simply to the level of ordinary people uh, from whom the tzaddik is very different, as I stressed earlier on. Sometimes it is even right down to the realm of evil uh, to experience it in order to function effectively as a mediator for ordinary people or people who are trapped within the material evil world that we inhabit. So Sholem suggested that this uh, feature of the Hasidic teaching is in itself a response, a modified response of the descent of Sabbatai Tzvi to Islam, to conversion or the transgression that became uh, uh, inherent in the Sabbatean conception of the law of messianic time. Uh, this was uh, rejected uh, by some scholars, uh, notably by Mendel Pietras, who is a very important scholar of Hasidism, who argued that one can arrive at the Hasidic notion of the tzaddik and of the descent of the tzaddik completely bypassing the Sabbatean episode, which he believed was not as important as Sholem had made it. Uh, and so Hasidism was not reacting to Sabbateanism, but was developing independently its own set of uh, uh, teachings. Now, my own feeling is more inclined towards the Sholem position, that there is on several scores uh, a certain uh, continuity by way of reaction. And very notably, I thought, and that is the conclusion I came to in the end, in terms of the uh, position of women. Uh, certainly, if I needed one more area in which one could say Hasidism is a, a reaction to or a modification of, uh, in this case, clearly a reaction, not a modification, uh, to Sabbateanism, then the retreat from female spirituality that marks uh, Sabbateanism as a novelty, as something that is recognized for the first time in a way that I'm not familiar with before uh, or after, that this feature of Hasidism, in fact, is one more uh, piece of evidence to strengthen that interpretation. I would like to thank Professor Ada Rappaport-Albert for joining us on the Jewish Studies channel of the New Books Network. We've been discussing two of her books. The first, Hasidic Studies, Essays in History and Gender, published by the Lippmann Library of Jewish Civilization in 2018, and her book, Women and the Messianic Heresy of Sabtai Tzvi, published by Lippmann Library in 2011.